7 o'clock. Thursday Night Talk starts right now. And welcome to Thursday Night Talk right here on KHSU. Tonight, Tom Wheeler is our host. As always, we welcome your contributions at 826-4805 or if you're out of the area, toll free at 800-640-5911 or to our text line at 492-KHSU. All right. Welcome to Thursday Night Talk. I have with me two special guests tonight, Craig Tucker and Mike Belchick. Uh, And we're going to be talking about a a subject that is probably on a lot of people's minds these days, which is Klamath Dam Removal. Um, And I chose this topic because I knew that I cared about it, but then I realized I had no idea what was actually going on anymore. Uh, So this is a chance for two experts in the subject to educate me and educate you. Uh, So feel free to call in with any questions that you might have. The number is 826-4805, or you can text us. This is pretty cool. 492-KHSU. All right. So, Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Hey, it's really glad to be here. My name is Mike Belchick, and I'm a senior water policy analyst for the Yurok Tribe. And I've been working on Klamath issues, including dam removal, for a little over 23 years now. And uh, it's an honor to work for the Yurok Tribe. I represent a tribal government that represents a tribe that's been on the river for, well, since the beginning of time. And the river's everything to them. Uh, It's their church. It's their supermarket. It's the axis of which their world revolves around. So it's it's an honor, and it's a little scary at the same time. But uh, I've been at it for quite a while now, and this is what I do is dam removal. Awesome. And Craig Tucker. Hey, Craig. Hey, thanks for having me. My name's Craig Tucker. I'm the natural resources policy consultant for the Karuk tribe. And I've been working for Karuk since about um, 2003, I think, and came here to work on this campaign to remove dams on the Klamath River. And I feel a lot like Mike does. It's um, It's been a life-altering experience to work for Karuk and uh, get, gain a better understanding of the values that the native folks here have and the, the importance of salmon and the river to, to their culture and their lives. And, I, and I, again, I, I agree with Mike that it really, I think it puts pressure on us to get this thing right because of how important it is. So uh, I'm pleased to be here and, I, and I'm, I'm excited to talk about my favorite subject. All right. And so that subject again is Klamath Dam Removal. And so um, to to kind of understand and set the scene, let's let's talk about what the Klamath Dam once looked like. And let's go way back in history, pre-European colonization. Um, what was it like uh, on the Klamath River? What, what was the river like? Well, I think uh, what a lot of people around here don't realize is what an incredible river this is. Uh, first of all, it's really old. It's over 100 million years old geologically. And it's very diverse. So the Klamath River, uh, most of the people here in Arcata would know that if you drive about 60 miles north, you'll see the Golden Bears Bridge, and there's this really large river that you cross over, and that's the Klamath. But if you go upriver and keep going, it gets more and more interesting. So the river starts all the way on the other side of the Cascades. There's only one other river that crosses the Cascades, and that's the Columbia River. Where it starts, it's desert. But it's not a real dry desert. There's these very large springs that just pop out of the ground. So uh, in the upper Klamath, we're talking uh, in southern Oregon, 
uh, by Klamath Falls, South Central Oregon. Uh, entire rivers just pop right out of the ground, uh, the Wood River, for example. And these all collect uh, into a large lake called Upper Klamath Lake uh, that, that then forms the source for the Klamath River. All throughout the Klamath River, there's an exciting and diverse array of animals, uh, whether they're fish, there's um, endemic species in Upper Klamath Lake that only occur there and nowhere else in the world. Uh, the Lower Klamath has, uh, is one of only two rivers on the West Coast, or three rivers, where green sturgeon spawn. Um, and so what you see, you have this incredible diversity, not only in like water sources, uh, where it starts in what you might call marshes in the middle of the desert and springs, wetlands and lakes that then collect and go down through a basalt canyon. Um, and then the river just plunges right through the heart of the Klamath, uh, marble, Siskiyou Mountains, uh, all the way down to the ocean. And by the time it finishes up, it's temperate rainforest, some of the largest redwoods in the world. So you just see this incredible diversity of um, geography, of geology, of hydrology, and uh, biodiversity up and down the river. So before... Uh, and even now, there is an incredible array of fish and fish species, um, including sturgeon. There's a small species called candlefish. Uh, that's a really cool one. Tell folks about that. Well, candlefish is about 12 inches long. It's a silvery fish. Uh, it comes in from the ocean, spawns in the gravel, like right near the ocean. It doesn't go very far upriver. And then the larvae get washed back down. And when they were plentiful in uh, the mid-70s or so, you could just scoop up netfuls of them and fill up uh, enough to feed a family. They're so filled with oil that when you dry them out, you could literally just light them on fire. And so they're, they're, one of the names is candlefish. The other is uh, Ulicon or Hooligan. Uh, this species was really important all throughout the Northwest. Uh, they would either eat them whole or dry them. There's uh, drying racks on the beach and things like that. Or uh, render them into grease and then just use the grease to put the, on food in the middle of winter as a real important staple in the middle of winter. So in addition to the candlefish or, or ulicon, uh, there's uh, coho salmon, three runs of Chinook salmon, three runs of steelhead. Uh, there's lamprey eels. There's coastal cutthroat trout. Uh, and then there's a whole array of native fish, uh, sticklebacks and, and sculpins and other things like that. So uh, for the West Coast, which generally doesn't have as much fish diversity as the East Coast, this is a very diverse and rich river. And it really provided for the people that were there. There was something happening, migrating in or out of that river every single day of the year. All right. And so species diversity often begets other forms of diversity. And so we have a diversity of tribes and, and native people who lived along the river. Craig, can you tell us a little bit about some of these tribes? Yeah. And I, you know, we're really lucky here in Humboldt County to be living in and you know, truly be living in Indian country. You know, we have some of the highest concentrations of native populations anywhere in the lower 48 here. And the tribes here are very diverse, too. So um, Hoopa, Yurok, and Karuk, they're, they're very different people. They speak languages from um, different linguistic groups. Radically different. Radically different linguistic. It, it, Algonquin, Athabascan, and Hok, you know, Karuk barely fits into the Hokan language group. Um, so... You know the origins of these people are very different, and um, but I, I always always think about what it must have been like, and I think places like 
you know, Wichipec were probably like very cosmopolitan places where you'd have people who spoke multiple languages. Uh, it was very rich in trade. Um, native people here did not have to pick up and move and, you know, chase um, buffalo or migratory animals around. They, were, they had permanent village sites year-round. The river provided such a bounty that, you know, harvesting fish and harvesting food was, you know, pretty straight. I mean, hard work, but uh, it was plentiful and it afforded opportunities to really develop sophisticated cultures. There was um, commerce. There was um, things like wood, woodpecker scalps um, were a form of currency. So there's an economy with currency. Um, the basketry uh, sophisticated and really unparalleled the world over the, the, the techniques. The, I've, I've seen soup cooked in baskets. Uh, and I think you know, people would be surprised to see that, right? So you know, I think it was a very – it was a rich place. It was a cosmopolitan place. And all that, to some degree, um, really faced a reckoning when the gold rush started. Uh, around the 1850s, and it, I think it changed everything forever. It was a, it was really a genocide. What happened here, and um, you know, I think it's uh, a dark place of American history, and it's something that the tribes here are still struggling with and recovering from. But I, I as someone who has been working for the tribe for a number of years, I can I can say that I think tribes are getting better and better and better at exercising self-governance. Um, they are affecting public policy in a lot of different ways, both with rivers and fire management, education. Tribes have housing programs. So things are, have really changed over time, and I would say that the tribes here are real leaders in our communities now. And, um, like, you know, Karuk operates health clinics that are not just serving Native people, but over in Siskiyou County, you know, the Crook Tribe is providing some um, medical services, uh, really for more non-Native people than Native people. So they're they're just leaders in our community now and providing uh, educational opportunities, healthcare opportunities, and business opportunities uh, in a way that's really important for local economies. Well, I just wanted to uh, amplify on that and just say that. You know, we're here to talk about dam removal, um, but the tribe that I work for has so much going on. They employ over 325 people, which is more than like the county of Humboldt, for example. Uh, they're a fully functioning government, and the dam removal is just one of many efforts that they have. Other efforts include condor reintroduction. Um, they're trying to repurchase and manage some of the forests that form some of their ancestral territories, as, as well as taking care of their tribal members through health clinics, social services, education department. So they're fully functioning with all all the branches of government that you would expect in a fully functioning government. All right. And, and uh, you know, to try to set the picture for this again, a lot of this then relates back to the river. The river is kind of the backbone in some respects for, for these tribes. Um, and so the river kind of got screwed up. Uh, we put in dams. All right. So let, let's talk about the history of dam building before we talk about blowing those suckers up. Mm -hmm. All right, Craig, when was the first dam and why do we put it in place? Well, dam building really started around 1908 is when the Klamath Irrigation Project uh, started to be built. And so the Klamath Irrigation Project, and I would just remark, the Klamath Basin is about the size of the state of Maryland. 
So you, you're really talking about a giant piece of real estate when you're talking about the Klamath Basin. And today, the Klamath Irrigation Project is about a 225,000-acre federal irrigation project. So they started building dams in order to um, – they wanted to drain some of the wetlands – and then be able to farm in some of that reclaimed land. They need to be able to manage the water so that it was both pumping water off the landscape in the winter and then being able to reapply stored water to the landscape in the spring and summer. And the other piece of that history I think is really important is the United States provided incentives for people to move to the upper basin and use this irrigation project. So after World War One. And again, after World War II, um, the United States held um, um, the, a lottery. A lottery. There was a, a live lottery on uh, NBC Radio to provide um, land grants to people to come out and start farming. So a lot of the folks that are farming up there in the Upper Basin are the sons, grandsons, and great grandsons of war veterans from World Wars One and Two. Uh, along with that came the need for power. So they're manipulating a lot of water. They're moving a lot of lot water around. And a private company called the California Oregon Power Company came to the United States and said, we want to build a complex of hydropower dams. And so the United States granted the California Oregon Power Company, COPCO, the ability to, to build these dams. And in 1918, they constructed the first of these dams called COPCO-1. Uh, along with that came a preferential power rate for the irrigators in the upper basin and that's, that's a relevant piece of the story as we talk about how we got to dam removal so copco was built in 1918 um there were uh, six dams in all the last of which is iron gate which was built in 1962 really to re-regulate the erratic flows coming from the hydropower dams upstream so the development of these dams are, are they're going down downstream closer to the Pacific as as they get built? That's correct. Okay. But the the lowest one's about 190 miles from the ocean. So there's still a lot of river below the lowest dam. Uh, for those around here, it's the lowest dam, Iron Gate, is all the way above Interstate 5. It's pretty far upriver. Yeah. That- and, three, and so when we talk about dam removal, we're really talking about removing the four lower dams. Three of those dams are in California, and one is just across the state line in Oregon. It's J.C. Boyle Dam. Okay. Um, all right. Listeners, I'm sure you have some comments. Uh, call us at 826-4805. Uh, all right. So turning back to, to dams. So we, we put in this series of dams. We gave preferential uh, power agreements to the, the upper irrigators. Um, they're all in place by 1962. When did we realize we screwed up? Or, and some people I don't think have <laughs> well so uh, dams in the United States are regulated and I'll try to try to walk you through this here according to the Federal Power Act which was passed in the 1930s the gist of it is that it regulates how private companies can operate or own dams on public waterways uh, since it's a public waterway the United the federal government has jurisdiction and they grant an operating license uh, these, according to the Federal Power Act, go um, for 30 to 50 years, generally 50-year licenses. Um, and the last license was granted in 1955. 
which meant that that expired in 2005. These are long and involved processes, very arcane. Uh, there's all kinds of sub-regulations and things like that uh, involved. And they created a body called the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. We just call it FERC, F-E-R-C. Um, so FERC is the one who rules uh, about the conditions upon which these dams can operate. So every 50 years when it comes time to relicense it, you take a fresh look at the way the dams operated in light of new technology and new ways of doing things. That process uh, for the Klamath Dam started in the year 2000. Uh, and so around 2000, Pacific Ore, uh, which was the successor to uh, Copco Power Company uh, and, now, and now owns the dams, uh, a multinational energy company um, by the year 2000, started the process of relicensing the dams. Uh, and so they started holding public meetings, and uh, usually there's a, like a lot of studies to be done and things like that that are involved in that. And that's when we started getting involved. Both the Yurok and the Kruk tribe around the year 2000 started going to these meetings and saying things like, well, what if we took a look at taking these dams out? What do you think? What Shouldn't we look at that? And we were literally laughed out of the room. Um, so if we can back up just one sec, though, did, when did we start to see effects from the dams on our local salmon runs? Well, pretty pretty immediately. Yes. I mean, you had to remember the Klamath River was returning somewhere on the order of one to one and a half million adult salmonids a year. All right. And how many are we doing now? Well, um one so percent of that okay you know with, we've got <laughs> yeah. runs that have been um pink and chum salmon or have been extirpated from the klamath uh-huh. uh coho salmon are on the endangered species list and number most years in the hundreds or low thousands of individual fish spring chinook we we hand count spring chinook salmon you, we have dives on the salmon river which is one of the last places that the spring Chinook salmon uh, spawn. And this year, I think there was 110 fish counted. Um, so it, it's the shadow, you know, I would say the Klamath is a shadow of its former self. And I think it's important to point out that not only can you describe the impact of dams and the numbers of fish, you can describe it in the health of the people who depend on those fish. So soon after Iron Gate Dam was built in 62, the spring-run salmon collapsed. Soon after spring-run salmon populations collapsed, you saw spikes in uh, diet-related diabetes, diet-related obesity, and heart disease in native populations. And this has been documented through studies by Dr. Kari Norgard and others. Um, but there's a, there's a human health impact associated with this denied access to tr- traditional foods. You know, native people, the Karuk, the Yurok, Hoopa people, they evolved here, co-evolved with the fish and the river and a, um, a diet that, that the river afforded. And rapidly in a, the span of a generation, they had to transition to a diet of largely commodities that were provided by government services. And so this was high starch, high fat foods, and their bodies weren't ready to accommodate that. And so... You know, I, I don't think I can really overstate the the consequences of building these dams on the numbers of fish 
but I think more importantly, what that has meant to the health of the people who who depend on those fish and live in these communities. All right. So, so we realized almost immediately after after was Iron Gate in '62 that that this was bad. Um, this well, it started a lot earlier than that. Okay, and there's there's multiple causes. Um, you know, the hydraulic mining from the gold rush was an incredible fish killer. Um, there's agriculture on the Shasta Scott River that continue to have impacts, but I think it's canneries, you know the can, dams, canneries at the mouth of the river, canneries at the mouth of the river with lack of proper harvest controls, um, non-Indians coming in and taking all the fish, things like that. So it's important, you know, when you look at it right now. There's multiple causes. It's a complicated problem, but the more we looked at the dams, the more we came to understand what a pivotal role they had in causing the spring run to collapse, for example, the water quality problems that they brought on and things like that. The more we looked at them, the more our eyes got open to the incredible effects that they had. All right. So so we're we're in 2000. It's the FERC relicensing process. This is the first time that the tribes have brought up um, maybe these dams shouldn't be here. What You said you got laughed out of the room. Well, literally, they were like, yeah, that's that's pretty entertaining, but let's get back to the business of relicensing here. There was no intention at all of removing these dams, and FERC uh, has a terrible track record of requiring dam removal. It's theoretically possible, but it had only happened on one river in the United States prior to the Klamath uh, that was on the Edwards River in Maine. Uh, and even then, the company withdrew their applications, reached a private agreement, and the dam was removed. But so here we are facing a FERC, uh, which is a commission that is not in favor of dam removal, but we did our homework. So this is one of the things you do. You look at the Federal Power Act. You look at all the arcane regulations. You figure out what FERC's policy on dam removal is, and you start addressing that. Because like I said, FERC, the relicensing process is an arcane it's like a quasi-judicial. It's almost kind of like a court case. So FERC will only consider things put on the record. You either submit it in writing or it's not part of the record. So it's very important to build that record. That's what we learned early on. We started building the record. We started doing our own studies. Uh, we started looking at things, um, how, what impact the dams had on the river, and started doing that. But that's not all it took. I think Craig will describe some of the other things. Yeah, well, and I think it's really important to understand that the the dams don't control how much water's in the river. Really? So, so flows in the Klamath River are really a function of how the Klamath Irrigation Project is operated. So um, that water's taken out of over Klamath Lake. <clears throat> so we had kind of these two, you know, I think the Klamath has, there's a lot of problems that challenge the Klamath. But if we were going to narrow it down to two, we would say the Klamath River dams and the flows in the river that are a consequence of how the Klamath Irrigation Project works. And they're really two separate issues. And I think it's important to point out because I think people often confound the two or lump them in somehow. So at the same time we're trying to relicense the dams, there are lawsuits raging. Um, So in if people, old-timers like, Mike and I will remember <laughs> back in 2001 and 2002, we're locked in a drought. Mm-hmm. Um, for the first time in the history of the Klamath Irrigation Project, they 
had to cut off their irrigation diversions. Up until 2001, they they irrigated until they were done irrigating. Um, you're in and you're out. And after Coho were listed and suckers in the lake were listed, we got into a drought in 2001. It was really the first time that the farmers were denied all the irrigation water that they wanted. And it was a calamity. They didn't know how to, you know, they didn't have systems to to deal with water shortages. People went bankrupt. And there were epic protests and riots. And um, at the time, the you know, the Bush administration sort of reversed its position on uh, the need to leave water in Upper Klamath Lake and leave the water in the river. And so when 2002 came around, we're still locked in a drought. But it, they decided that, yeah, the science really doesn't justify cutting the farmers off. So in 2002, the farmers got their water. The consequence of that was the biggest adult salmon fish kill in U.S. history when somewhere around sixty or 70,000 fish went belly up on the Yurok Reservation uh, that fall. And so I, I think 2001 and 2002 was sort of this rock-bottom moment, and it, it kind of was about the time that the Klamath Dam relicensing started. So the dam relicensing sort of was this table set around the dams, but if you're going to negotiate a settlement agreement around the dams, you're free to bring in any issue that people want to negotiate around. And so the irrigators were at the table, the tribes were at the table, fishermen, conservation groups, counties, um, all at the table trying to figure out how to solve this. And so I think it's important as we tell this story to understand there were really kind of two tracks. One around resolving the how we share the water with the farmers, or do we share the water with the farmers, and another around how do we remove the dams. And so then this is still... Still in the world of FERC relicensing, or are we talking about private agreements yet? Well, uh, yes. A little uh, bit of both. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of both. A little bit of both. Yeah. All right. All right. So 2001, 2002, what, what's the next big step? Um, well, we, we had, you were like, okay, well, how do you remove a dam? Like, what's, how have people done it in the past? Turns out um, there are groups like American Rivers and Trout Unlimited and organizations that we would consider partners sitting at the table with us who have been a part of dam removal agreements around the country, including the Edwards Dam in Maine that that Mike mentioned. And the common theme was they were all a product of a negotiated agreement where the dam owner agreed to dam removal under negotiated conditions. And so we're like, hey, well, Pacific um, let's negotiate a dam removal agreement and they're you know and they kind of showed us the hand right they're not, they're not interested they really did yeah so we decided that what does what showing you the hand look like well they're like no we, we're not going to have a meeting to talk about we're talking about re- we're relicensing these dams they're an asset that's important to us we want a new license all right they like for example they refused to meet with the rock tribe for five straight years Ooh. so we're like okay well i guess you need motivation um so at the time <laughs> at the time pacific horror was owned by a multinational energy company called scottish power which is headquartered in glasgow scotland so in 2000 must have been about 2004 we really i think was sort of the launch event for our undamned the klamath bring the salmon home campaign about 30 of us went to scotland 
and attended the shareholders meeting of Scottish Power. And <laughs> I don't know, looking back on it, I don't think we, I fully appreciated the time of how bold we were being, but um, we went back and members of Karukirak, Hoopa, Klamath tribes, um, local fishing um, folks like Dave Bitts and Ronnie Pellegrini and others who are um, second, third, and fourth generation commercial fishermen out of Eureka were with us as allies. And um, we crashed a shareholders meeting and spent a couple of weeks in Scotland doing media and holding protest. And I think we not only did that piece, we went to London and met with um, mutual fund companies because Scottish Power was considered a very green energy company. And we went to London and took the message. The only thing green about these dams is the toxic algae that's behind them. And I think I think that sort of uh, really affected Scottish Power. Uh, but we went three times to Scotland. And uh, I thought we were going to win. I mean, these... I can just remember these elderly Scottish women were appalled that... Um, that this would happen. I think people in Scotland uh, felt some kind of kinship. I mean, the, the Scots were subjugated by the English. The Scots were largely sort of uh, uh, clans or tribes themselves. The, the the coat of arms for the city of Glasgow had three salmon on it. Um, people in Scotland were like, yeah, Scottish power, you can't do that abroad. Yeah, the message really resonated in Scotland. Um, there was a lot of media coverage, a lot of positive media coverage, and uh, it was an incredibly successful trip. Um, I know that Scottish powers, we, we did analysis where we looked at their statements to the press, and they went from saying, we are not interested in removing those dams, to saying we'd be interested in uh, discussing it if it could be found to be in our shareholders' benefit. So that change happened after we went to Scotland. All right. And I think that we have an off-air caller uh, with a question. Yes, we do. And thanks, Tim, for calling in this evening. He was wondering if either of you gentlemen knew whether the Yurok or, or the Yurok or Karu tribes were currently involved in discussions about the Twin Tunnels project that's happening down in Sacramento. All right. Well, we'll probably cover Twin Tunnels and some other water quality or water quantity projects uh, a little bit later in the show. So hang on, Tim. No problem. All right. So we're in Scotland right now. Right. Land of kilts. Um, so you, the three protests, they they finally got through and they started to talk to the, the tribes? Well, it, it, they when I thought, you know, one more trip to Scotland and the shareholders are going to vote to remove these dams and it's going to be a done deal. I got the call that Scottish Power had sold Pacificor to Berkshire Hathaway's uh, has an energy holdings company uh, called Mid-American Energy. So this is Warren Buffett's empire. <laughs> and I was, I was pretty devastated because I, I was like, I thought we'd almost, we we're almost there. And I knew that Warren Buffett was going to be a different animal. But, um, you know, one thing I'll say about um, Karuk and Yurok and Hoopa people is um, re- remarkably resilient. I mean, people, I was like, I broke the news to um, my colleagues and tribal activists, and they're like, all right, well, I guess we better book flights to Omaha. 
Yeah. I mean, that's the great thing about being a resilient people (laughs) who've faced (laughs) genocide is that they've seen worse. Uh, It it was, I was, I was pretty, I was amazingly, I mean, I think I was really depressed and they were like, okay, this is another, yeah, it's another challenge we'll have to deal with. And so um, we bravely loaded up and um, we did a tour. So, so Mid-American and Scottish Power or Pacific Horror have... Um, businesses in Oregon and California and Utah and so we basically kind of had a uh, a protest or some kind of demonstration or a press conference at several of their businesses across the country as we caravaned to Omaha and you know was, so the next three years we were going to Omaha and crashing the Berkshire Hathaway um, uh, Warren Palooza, I guess is what they call it. And it was a very intimidating environment. So there, these shareholders meetings were in the, uh, an arena, basketball arena that seats 30,000 people. And, um, and everyone is there to praise the Oracle of Omaha himself, Warren Buffett. And we, um, the first year we went with a message of, I don't know if you realize this, but when you bought Pacific Core, you bought a problem, and that problem is East Klamath Dams. And again, I felt like we were sort of given the hand or rebuffed, and then we went back with a more aggressive message, and we um, went with the intent of disrupting their shareholders' meeting. So we did banner hangs in the meeting, we dumped toxic algae around, we hijacked newspaper stands and had our own newspapers that we put in the newspaper stands, and we launched... Um, the day of the shareholders meeting, one of those years, we launched a uh, lawsuit against Berkshire Hathaway that ran on the front page of the USA Today, which, of course, is the newspaper that's outside of your hotel room. And so shareholders got up in the morning and picked up the USA Today and saw they were getting sued by these people in Northern pretty, California. Pretty genius move. Yeah. So, and it was there was a lot of... And, it, you know, at the same time we were all in Omaha, we had another crew of people... Um, doing an action at Pacific Horse headquarters in Portland, Oregon. So, I mean, I I could go on and on with the stories, but there was, you know, I, I always describe this campaign as being a full-figured campaign because the stuff I like to talk about and the stuff that I think sexy is all the protests and everything like that. But at the same time, guys like Mike and the other scientists that were working for tribes, the scientists that were working for the environmental groups and agencies, were populating the FERC record with the evidence necessary to prove that the dams created water quality problems, that if fish could get past the dams, there was habitat up there that they could use. And so I think you needed – and then we had these lawsuits. So we had a legal strategy – we had a grassroots PR strategy, and then we had a scientific strategy as well. And it was really the, all those things together that dovetailed into where we are today. All right, Mike, and let's talk about that science. Um, so <laughs> we have we have water quality and water quantity in insofar as how they manage uh the, the Klamath what is it called? Upper Klamath Lake? The Klamath Irrigation Project. Klamath Irrigation yeah. Project. All right. 
So, yeah, tell, tell us well, about there's, the Well, there's a couple developments, uh, really important developments. Uh, first of all was the discovery of the toxic algae by the Karuk tribe and their water quality monitoring. So the reservoirs provide habitat for this uh, bright green algae called microcystis. Uh, it turns out it's really poisonous. Uh, it's a potent liver toxin. And it uh, it accumulates in people's bodies. Uh, it's capable of killing animals and dogs or people. Uh, and we found it in extremely high concentrations. So, for example, World Health Organization standards are 10,000 cells per milliliter. I think their top one they found is 300 million cells per milliliter. So we're just talking off the charts, uh, poisonous water here in these reservoirs. And it was coming downriver. So we started sampling downriver. We're finding out, like... Oh, this stuff's actually coming down river and it's causing health problems for tribal members. People are getting lesions on their legs that wouldn't mm. heal and things like that uh, from fishing in the Klamath River, let alone the uh, significance of the Klamath River as a, as a cleaning or healing place. Uh, and suddenly it's filled with poison. Uh, in addition to that, like I said, you have to know your playing field and the law. And the relicensing process uh, has a couple of places where other agencies can insert conditions that are mandatory for the power company. And one of those is fish passage. So there's a section of the Federal Power Act called 10J, which says that National Marine Fishery Service can uh, require fish passage at facilities if it's found to be feasible and there's enough habitat upriver. So we provided them with that information that made it so that they could make that uh, determination. So those two things were really important additions to the record, especially the fish passage. So one of the models that we looked at for dam removal was another dam that Pacific Corps owns called Condit Dam in southern Washington. And there they had fish passage requirements that cost more than the dam removal. Well, that's a big deal because uh, Pacific Corps makes their money by charging rates to electric ratepayers to cover their costs. But the PUC, which oversees them, could say, hey, it would actually be cheaper for you guys to take the dams out. We're not going to allow you to recover those rates. Well, it turns out the amounts of money that we're uh, talking about here were a significant portion of the, of the company's worth. So now you're starting to put a lot of shareholder value at stake in this one relicensing for a facility that provides less than 2% of their power portfolio is suddenly also providing a significant risk to their company's net worth. And so these are the ways that you, there's a parallel process. There's the arcane, you know, the relicensing process and all the science, but it sets the stage for the negotiations. And once those fish passage requirements became um, required, then the company took us to court, but we won. And so now it's like, okay, now let's go back to the negotiating table. And we reached a deal pretty fast after that. All right. So what what year are we talking about now? So they took us to court. We won. We we won the court case in 2008. And we signed. A, we reached the agreement in principle in 2009. And we signed the completed Klamath Hydroelectric Settlement Agreement in 2010. All right. So once it started moving, it was pretty fast. It just took many, many years to get it moving. And what do these agreements say? Well, the original 2010 agreement, there was two agreements, or really there's three, but there was uh, the KHSA, the Klamath Hydropower Settlement Agreement, which detailed dam removal and how that would be financed. 
And it was a combination of financing from Pacific Corps and California's water bond. So we were providing some public money as an incentive to Pacific Corps. And then there was a, an agreement attached to it that was really a reconciliation of the irrigation diversions from the Climate Irrigation Project. And along with that came uh, federal funding to help the irrigators um, you know, upgrade their irrigation infrastructure, but also came with money to pr- provide a bunch of habitat restoration along the Klamath River. That whole package was structured to require an approval from Congress. So we spent four or five years trying to get Congress to go along with this. And we hit a brick wall with Congressman Doug LaMalfa and Greg Walden, who are on the House Natural Resources Committee. And they just could not choke down dam removal. They had a... And LaMalfa is from Siskiyou County or from northeastern California. And right. Walden represents that... that Southeastern climate. Oregon. Yeah. And... Um, and it was really amazing to me because we were going to Congress. We'd meet with Congressman Walden and Congressman LaMalfa, and we'd say, look, um, we think these dams are going to come out either way. The, the company doesn't want them. They, they're, the cost of relicensing, it'd be like getting your 62 Buick to pass emission standards in California. It, it's like, go get a Prius, man. It's not going to work. Um, but here's a package. It's dam removal, but also... Um, because of the, infra- the improvements to water quality infrastructure, because of the drought plan, because of the habitat restoration pieces. It's a way that we can share the water and ag communities can survive and the fish-dependent communities can survive. And we couldn't get them to approve it. And so when it looked like everything was about to collapse, um, Pacific Corps, Oregon, and California from the emerged like a phoenix from the ashes with uh, an amended KHSA, which shed the whole water sharing agreement. What year are we? Um, 14. 2014. All right. This is when I first came to California. This is starting to feel familiar. It's starting to sound familiar now. So we signed that agreement um, up in uh, Requa at the mouth of the Klamath. And uh, it just basically moved the whole dam removal piece forward. We created a nonprofit entity called the Klamath River Renewal Corporation. Um, the KRRC and Pacific Corps have applied to FERC to um, allow Pacific Corps to transfer ownership of the dams to the KRRC. The KRRC will receive $200 million from Pacific Corps, $250 million from California's Prop 1, and then use that money to execute dam removal in 2020. That whole thing is, that's the plan. And the step we're at is the California Water Board has to grant a clean water certification for the project. We just got the draft certification, and that requires them to write an environmental impact report. We expect that environmental impact report out late this fall. And once California completes that process, Oregon has a similar process that's much simpler. Once that Clean Water Act certification happens, FERC is going to be free to approve dam removal. And the history of these projects is when the owner of the dam goes to FERC and says, we want to remove the dams. Uh, The majority of the stakeholders are on board with this. FERC typically is like, hey, sounds good to us if that's what the owner wants to do. 
So we think we're in a really good place and we're really optimistic this is going to work. Okay. So so was it 2020 FERC makes a decision or 2020 we we hopefully have wrecking balls and whatever else you need to talk about or to do a dam removal? We think in 2020 they'll start. I mean, there's going to have to be things like there's going to have to be roads built. There's going to have to be places to put the rubble. These kinds of things will be happening. We think FERC's decision will come in 2019 or early 2020. In 2020, they'll start laying the, you know, the groundwork for this, and then we'd breach the dams in 2021. All right. Well, it was originally for 2020, but it's the the um, permitting delays have pushed it back for a single year right now. Um, there's a lot of prep reconstruction. The dams will cease production of electricity uh, right around. I think Copco's going to start in November 2020. The other ones will follow suit in January. The plan right now is for all four dams to come out in a single winter. Um, the reason we're doing wintertime removal is to minimize impacts to the river. That's the time of year when the river normally floods anyway. Uh, there's a lot of sediment movement anyway. All the critters that are in the river that I described earlier have a way of dealing with that. So we didn't want to prolong it and do one dam a year and have impacts for four years in a row. Uh, we just said, let's just get them in one year and get it over with. So right now, that's the plan. It's uh, an impressive plan. Uh, what, what's that uh, aphorism, something about best laid plans, something about God laughing at you or something like that. <laughs> uh, so there, even though 2020 is not that far away, there are maybe some challenges that could stand in the way or could potentially gum up the works or delay us. All right. And so we have about 15 minutes left. Let's talk about those. Uh, and if anybody has any calls, the number is 826-4805. This is Thursday Night Talk, and we're talking with Craig Tucker and Mike Belchick. All right, so coming up the works, um, let's maybe talk first about um, this new tribe that might might come into existence. Um, well, uh, one of the – there's a few members of Congress that – I don't know. They can. They can. They can't. I always think about. You know. I don't know if you guys saw Happy Days. I'm old enough. I watched Happy Days, and the Fonz could never really say I'm sorry. You know, the Fonz always choked on trying to say he was sorry. And I think um, we have a few congressmen that choke when they try to say dam removal. <laughs> and I think Congressman Doug Lamalfa is one of those guys. And they. Um, it, it's it's really ideological. You know, we're not on a crusade to remove all the dams in the world or all the dams in America or all the dams in California. We think every dam has to be judged on its own merits. And we think that we've judged the Pacific or the Pacific Corps' Klamath River dams on their own merits and they deserve to be removed. Well, Pacific Corps has judged its own dams and wants to get rid of them. So um, it's a little shocking that a conservative Republican congressman would try to tell a private property owner how to dispose of their own assets, but they want to deny Pacific Corps the opportunity to remove these dams. And he's tried a bunch of different strategies, but uh, interestingly, Congressman LaMalfa has a, a very mm, cozy relationship with a lot of casino tribes, particularly some casino tribes in Southern California, and he's maneuvered himself to be the chairman of the Subcommittee on Indian and Insular Affairs. So this is a subcommittee of the House Natural Resources Committee. So he's in a pretty powerful position to deal with Indian issues. And he recently, kind of out of the blue, uh, moved to, uh, quote-unquote, restore a rancheria 
uh, in Scott Valley, which is in Siskiyou County, California, called the Ruffy Rancheria. Um, this sort of came out of left field to us, but essentially this is a tribe that never really formed. This was a, a piece of land that was purchased in 1905 for a two families of Karuks that were living near Etna, California, who chose never to actually live on the property, never to form a government. And in fact, the descendants of those folks are enrolled Karuk people. And the um, gentleman that is spearheading this and proclaims himself chairman of this group, his mother, his grandmother, and his great-grandfather are all enrolled Karuks. And it just feels like uh, Lamalfa and this group of folks are kind of have some arrangement where if you provide us uh, recognition as a tribe and land us in the middle of the Klamath Dam project, we'll be there for you to try to make mischief in the dam removal process. All right. Um, Is there anything that the Trump administration could do to stand in your way? Well, so far in our talks with the uh, Department of Interior, the the official position of the Trump administration is that they're not going to stand in the way of a private company that's dealing with its own private assets. And they have, their stated intention is to be much more focused on the water issues, the farms, which is a whole other kettle of fish right now. There's court cases flying left and right about Endangered Species Act and uh, the Upper Klamath Lake and flows and everything. So they're, they're focusing on that. And so far, they haven't uh, interfered directly with dam removal. I would say that any time FERC is involved, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, there's three commissioners, they're appointed, uh, they can be quite unpredictable. Uh, So we still have to get FERC's permission to transfer the dams uh, to Klamath River, KRC, Klamath River Renewal Corporation, uh, and then FERC can also impose conditions on the way that the dams are removed, the sequencing, uh, the timing the methods uh, that could affect cost and things like that. So right now we're waiting to see what they're going to say about that. Are are these FERC commissioners, uh, you know, an appointed position that lasts a set period of time so that you could go across different administrations or do we? Okay. And so... But they tend to be people whose um, background is in the power industry. Crazy, No one one appointed any fish biologists to, to FERC. Not going to happen, no. If I'm ever president, which that, that's never going to happen. <laughs> but I, I'll, I'll vote for I'll, you, Tom. I'll appoint you. <laughs> so, backroom deals. Uh, oh, little crap. It's this all on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So, so Trump administration seems like they're not going to be a barrier. Um, I, I just saw something about a, a new lawsuit uh, from the Hoopa tribe. Uh, how, how does this impact all of this? Well, I think so. In 2014, Hoopa filed litigation um, out of frustration that the you know the relicensing process had been dragging on. We'd been trying to negotiate an outcome, which resulted in year-to-year temporary licenses. And I think that frustration led Hoopa to litigate um, this issue. And so, this case is against FERC. It's in the U.S. Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit. Um, There will be a hearing in this case sometime this fall, but what they're arguing is because California and Oregon did not act in a timely manner to um, provide a water quality certification or deny a water quality certification, that they've actually waived their authority to have jurisdiction over water quality issues in the relicensing. And I think it's 
I think there's a, a real risk of a unintended consequence here that this lawsuit, if, if Hooper prevails, could rob California and Oregon of their water quality authority and give that authority to the United States. So one of the things that's driving the economics for Pacificor is the fact that it's going to be very expensive to, to mitigate their water quality impacts to the Klamath River. But the federal administration may not have the same qualms uh, about water quality. And so from where we're sitting, we feel like we're on a trajectory to remove these dams. And we think this suit provides a, a real risk to getting there if Hooper prevails. All right. Do we have any other risks or should we start thinking about what it's going to look like in 2025? Well, I think I think there are some folks up in Siskiyou County that don't like this idea. I think there's um, a lot of people who have different values. Um, I think there are people who see Manifest Destiny as including the construction of dams and manipulation of water in the West. I think there's a lot of misinformation. I think there are people in Siskiyou County that think these dams provide irrigation diversions. That is not the case. Right. Well, I think it's worth saying that um, when the original agreement was signed in 2010, it contained a, a provision where the Secretary of Interior would have to make a determination about whether it was in the public interest to remove the dams. There was specific wording that was different than that, but that's the gist. And so the United States produced um, a whole stack of studies about what would happen with dam removal, what would happen to the fish, what about the sediment. Uh, there was uh, hundreds and hundreds of cores drilled to make sure that there's no toxic sediments. Um, what's the engineering of the dams, et cetera. Uh, we're talking... Um, 30 to 50,000 pages of studies um, that were done. So the record, the science that was done here is incredible. And, and reviewed by the and National Academy. Reviewed by the National Academy of Sciences. Right. And it's been reviewed by this scientist and that all whole peer review process. And yet there's a lot of misinformation going on in the upper basin about, uh, or particular Siskiyou County, um, saying that. Oh, well, there's like this much, you know, it provides clear drinking water for everybody, which is not true, that the toxic algae is a hoax, and there's all kinds of misinformation going on. But if you look at the objective facts, it really does point towards that these dams should go, and they would, the benefit would far outweigh the um, consequences. And for folks in Siskiyou County, we're talking about spending $450 million of other people's dollars in Siskiyou County, which really lags behind the economic recovery that's seen in other parts of California. So in a lot of ways, you know, this is going to be a, a, a massive injection of capital into the local economy for rural Siskiyou County. All right. Well, we have one quick question coming in on the phone lines. What do we got, Michael? Yes. Um, and this caller wanted to know if, if the dams provide flood control for people who live along the river. Oh, that's a good question, actually. So, uh, in fact, these dams uh, provide hardly any flood control. Uh, they're operated at full pool. Uh, Iron Gate has a design where uh, the penstock can only handle a small amount of water, and anything else has to go over the spillway, and it's kept full. You can't even you can't even lower the level 
of that lake. Uh, in fact, in 1964 flood, Iron Gate Dam almost completely failed. It was very, very. It was on the brink of failing. Spillway was heavily damaged. Kind of looked like the one in on the Feather River uh, there. So that's a good question that comes up time and time again. Um, the federal government study said that it was capable of delaying a flood peak for about a couple of hours, but was not capable of. Uh, swallowing a flood or or reducing the magnitude of the peak at all. And I imagine that the people who live along the river, the Karuk tribe and the Yurok tribe, probably care very much about this. So um, (laughs) I would say if if those folks aren't worried, you know, you you probably shouldn't be either. Well, people, I mean, we were worried and we did due diligence. I mean, there's been quite a bit of modeling and analysis um, there are flood maps. Um, there are uh, a small number of structures that are going to be modified to accommodate dam removal, a couple of bridges. So it's um, it's a legitimate concern, a legitimate question. But the uh, the real the only real flood control um, provided in the Klam- on the Klamath side is Upper Klamath Lake. And Upper Klamath Lake's massive, and that's really the flood control structure. That's really the water storage. And these dams uh, really don't help with that. Okay. All right. So we have we have just under five minutes remaining. Um, this year, I think we had a pretty disappointing uh, spring Chinook uh, fish count. Uh, second lowest on record. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. All right. So second lowest on record. Uh, you know, we're kind of running out of time. Um, let's let's fast forward 25 years from now. The, the dams are out. What what does the Klamath River look like as a result? Well, I, I keep telling people that the first 25-pound Chinook that shows up in the Williamson River is just going to blow people's minds. I don't think people full, fully realize it's not just the biological impact, but it's like the spiritual and cultural connections that are going to be made when the upper and lower basin finally reconnect. Um, the, all the cold water that's stable during the middle of summer is found in the upper basin. And we're facing a scenario here with climate change where we're losing our snowpack. And it's we're, we're trying to find places that we can find a home for the salmon that's stable into the future for climate change. And we need to get those fish to the upper basin. So what I'm seeing here is with J.C. Boyle Springs, Williamson, Wood River, I'm seeing a place for springers to live. And we're going to revive a lost run here. Uh, it's a pretty ambitious thing to do here. And we're still not even sure of all the details, but that's the goal. We want to bring back this run that went extinct, as well as help the other runs. Yeah, and, and we recently, Karuk filed a, a petition to list uh, spring Chinook salmon, and there's some excited. We could do a whole other show. Yeah, we should. I'm pitching, I'm pitching myself. We should do another show on, on the genetics of, of salmon, but <laughs> there's uh, some new discoveries from a researcher at UC Davis that is sort of um, key to understanding that there is a gene that's different in spring Chinook than fall Chinook, and it's really, a we, we argue, a different species because of this genetic difference. But we think this fish will, rec- that we know that the dominant run of fish above Iron Gate historically was springers. And we definitely have this sort of unbuild it and they will come mentality about springers recolonizing the upper basin. And I, so I know that you're probably talking, tired of talking about the Elwha, but we, we've seen that when, when dams are removed, uh, the fish come back. You know, it's the, if you build it or if you unbuild it, they will come. Every single time the fish have outperformed the expectation of the scientists, every single dam removal. All right. So uh, we have about one minute remaining. 
let's talk about what people can do. They want to help the fish. They want to help the tribes. Uh, there's a I imagine a public comment period coming up on the EIS. Yeah. So as soon as the Calif- state of California releases uh, the draft EIS, they will hold a series of public meetings. So I know all of you out there listening is like, how many public meetings do I have to go to? We're going to do it again. We'll do it in Eureka. There likely will be a meeting in Klamath, likely a meeting in Orleans and on up the river. But you keep coming out. I know you guys have been coming out for 10 years of these meetings. Keep coming out we have to, we need that perseverance and uh we hope our activists aren't worn out yet all right well that's our time i'd like to thank my guests so much we had uh craig tucker uh and uh mike belchek here in the studio um folks that was another great thursday night talk if you have any ideas for future shows uh, shoot me an email at tom at wildcalifornia.org. We just got a suggestion for fish genetics. I'm not sure how sexy we can make a show about fish genetics, but we're going to try. So thank you so much for listening and have a great Thursday night. You've been listening to Thursday Night Talk here on KHSU. Thanks to our host, Tom Wheeler, and to our guests, Craig Tucker and Mike Belchick. 